Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Today's guest is Nancy Schwartzman. But first, remember, we are giving away a copy of In the Lion's Den at the end of this month. So, be sure to go to warroommedia.com and subscribe there. Okay, Nancy Schwartzman is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and a member of the Directors Guild of America. She's nominated for a Peabody Award for her debut documentary, Roll Red Roll, which is exactly what we had her on today to discuss. There's also a book about it. We'll link to all of that, all of that in the show notes, which again is at warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to Nancy. Nancy, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So first, let me just ask a general question. What got you into perhaps true crime, but at least documentary filmmaking? Um, yeah, that's such a huge question, but I guess um, I always found, I mean, I kind of stumbled into it, but I was always interested in like kind of exploring people's lives and having permission to do that. <laughs> Basically, when you make a film, you have permission to ask people all kinds of questions they open the house to you, you can follow them. Um, but I think what I found was actually digging in and investigating something. Um, healing isn't the right word, but it was a way to kind of make sense of the world. It was a way to make sense of personal experiences. Um, and I found sort of the vehicle of filmmaking and later writing to just be this incredible way to dive in and understand stuff in a larger way and then have kind of global conversations about it. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because the um, the topic we're talking about today is obviously a very hard issue to discuss. I mean, it's not it's not easy, it's not pleasant, it's um it's real and it's raw. And so that's an interesting perspective that by doing this, you've kind of gotten the permission to talk about it and then you've got to take that responsibility obviously and, and handle it in a in a delicate and, and proper way. Um so yeah, I, I can I can that, I like that perspective. That's good. Um, so what got you on to this story? Was it online? You heard about it? Did you mm -hmm. call you and say, hey, you got to cover this? How'd, how'd you come mm -hmm. on to this? Story? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a story, a really high profile story of rape of a teenage girl in a high school. And, you know, when people say, oh, these are such intense topics to look at, it's like one in three women in the United States experience this. So it's most of our lived experience. It's most of us are either survivors of this kind of violence or something very close to it or no people. Um, certainly men know people, right? So it's like this thing um, that is everywhere. And I think obviously it's been talked about quite a bit more since the Me Too movement in 2017, 2018. But um you know, it's just a part of the fabric of being a woman in this society is like, you have to deal with this stuff. So, um, this story, yeah, I had made a short film in 29, uh, 2009, 2010, that was looking at, you know, consent. Right. So then I became this sort of person who's like, Oh, well, she talks about, you know, kind of this, you know, young people in America experience with both sexual empowerment and, things that go wrong, right? Rape culture, right? So when the Steubenville case broke, yes, everyone was calling me and I'm not, I don't identify as a journalist. Like I'm a filmmaker, right? I get to pick and choose what I do. I don't work for the, you know, New York times or Chicago tribune. 
it'd be great to have an editorial board. I don't have one. Right. So people are like, you have to do something. I'm like, I mean, do I like, what am I going to do? Um, but what felt really interesting about the Steubenville story was, and where I felt strongly, I wanted to look at this issue at was perpetrators and how boys and men so openly talk about, you know, degrading women or violating them, LOL, like all the jokes being thrown around. Um, it was also, it was also public, right? You think, how can I ever get my hands on what goes on in the mind of a killer, right? That's every show on Netflix, right? What goes on in the mind of a killer? For me, it was like, what goes on in the mind of a rapist? And you're like, how could I ever get in the mind of a rapist? And then you see the text messages and the tweets um, from the teenagers in Steubenville. And you're like, well, holy shit, there it is, you know? Right. So it's not a mystery. I didn't have to go deep into the prisons to try to find inmates that would let me speak to them about their mindset. That's what I was really interested in was like the mindset of people who do this. And that particular case just showed me everything, you know, it was so public. Let's go back to the the what you said about consent there. Um, mm-hmm. is this this doesn't seem to be um, much of a consent issue on this one because of the status of the of the girl. We'll get to in a minute, but um, maybe unpack this this idea. I mean, I know what consent means, obviously, but but mm-hmm. when you're talking about this, like how do we frame that conversation around what consent is? When someone mm-hmm. can give it, when they can't give it, mm-hmm. uh, can they revoke it? Uh, unpack for that for me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's some clear laws, right? Like if someone is drunk, um, what they call legally incapacitated, you cannot consent. So obviously um, you're right. Steubenville was black and white. This girl was being carried around. She literally couldn't walk on her own. That's obviously drunk. That's obviously incapacitated, but drunk is also drunk, you know, stumbling, not of the right mind. And I've talked to so many men who say like, of course, if someone's wasted, like, you know, no way. Like, I just know that this person's not with it. Whereas there are other people who see that as an opportunity and take it as an opportunity and absolutely consent can be revoked. It's not a forever thing. So if you're making out with someone and that's all good and, and both parties are really into it midway, if one party decides like, okay, I'm, I'm cool. Like, I don't want to go any further just because you guys were kissing and it was fine. Doesn't mean you have free reign and license to do everything and anything to this person. And that's all the way to the bedroom because, you know, I just find the framing of sex and negotiating, which I don't like that term negotiating consent. Like, what is this a war? Like, what are we at the Hague? Like battling it out, deciding what parts of our bodies were owed (laughs) from, from the other, you know, it's like, no, this should be a pleasurable, positive thing for both parties. And if something becomes uncomfortable at any point, anyone is allowed to say, Hey, I'm not cool with this. Like I'm, I want to stop. And that's to me, and maybe because I'm old now, that's just so crystal clear. And I think obviously teenagers need this education and young people need this education, especially children. Like, no, you can't touch someone if they don't want it. And no, you don't have to hug that relative that creeps you out. Like we need to teach kids early on. They don't have the right to touch their buddies and they're not obligated to touch people if they don't want to, right? We, we have bodily autonomy. So consent, 
I think is the lowest bar because it doesn't sound very fun, right? Well, at least I got consent. It's like, okay, but like, was the other person into it? Was it um, affirmative? Was, was the person saying, yes, give me more. I love this. Or was it, was the person silently sort of letting you do something? Um, on the flip side of all this, and I know, you know, sex education is just different in all the different regions and school systems and all that stuff. I do just want to say, um, you know, women are really socialized to be nice and like not rock the boat and men are really socialized. This is very like black and white, but it does sort of pan out. Men are socialized to, you know, not be able to really ask questions or show vulnerability. And that combination between the rigid gender roles is a really toxic one. Does that make sense? So a woman feels like she, you know, has to be nice, even if she's not into it, because God forbid she say, fuck you, man, like back off. Right. I hear so many girls like, well, I wanted to be nice. I'm like, why, <laughs> you know, you actually need to get out of there. And I know a lot of men who feel like they're not really allowed to express that they might not know what to do next, or they're also told they're supposed to just take it and go get it, you know, and, and sex becomes an extractive thing. Um, so that was really what was happening in the town and, and the culture of Steubenville. It's like this hyper-masculine athletic kind of beer soaked culture. Um, you know, that can be fun from a distance, right. But can be really harmful, um, for the boys who go to jail and the women who get violated. Right. Should we draw a line, an age line for consent? Um, you know, obviously minors, you know, in this case, we have alcohol involved. Mm -hmm. uh, they are breaking the law there. So society has said that they can't consent to mm -hmm. determine whether or not they can drink. Should we view consent uh, by age for sex as well? Ooh, that's a thorny question. <laughs> I would say no, because I'm a big fan of you know, experimentation, but there are statutory regulations. So obviously, you know, somebody who's not a minor should not be engaging in sex with 13 and 14 year olds because that's a violation. Right. Um, but I think if I'm look, I was a teenager, I experimented as a teenager. Um, no, I don't think, you know, criminalizing sexual experimentation by age is, is appropriate. I think it's really about taking the shame away and encouraging education. Like, so for example, in the Netherlands and Holland, right, which everyone knows is pretty open, they decriminalized drugs a million years ago, way before we did in California. Um, they decriminalized sex work. They have the best sex education pretty much in the world. And the kids wait really long before they have sex because they know about it, they learn about it, and they do a lot of emotional readiness. Like, do you feel like you want to go all this way with your boyfriend, you know, or your girlfriend? Like they talk about the feelings that come in to sex and um, the vulnerability that sex is. They kind of honor it, right? And the more these kids know, the kind of less they do before they're ready. It's not, it's not creating a nation of like 13-year-olds having wild sex, right? It's actually creating thoughtful teenagers saying, Hey, I'm not ready. You know, we don't do anything <laughs> and we, um, you know, say, don't talk about it or we stigmatize and shame it. And then our culture is really hypersexualized and it's a real disaster because kids don't feel like they can ask questions and they don't feel like they can say, I'm not emotionally 
ready and, or they don't have tools to say like, you're pressuring me. This is coercion. No, thank you. You know? Okay. That's, that's, that's a helpful framework for the discussion that we're, we're going to have. And so, mm-hmm. um, so thank you. Um, mm-hmm. So Steubenville, Ohio, um, high school football town, probably not a lot. I've never been there. Probably not mm-hmm. a lot else going on. Um, mm-hmm. I had to guess. Um, and there's a high school party. Mm-hmm. Um, where, as you mentioned, one one young lady um, was uh, overly intoxicated to the point of can't walk, um, mm-hmm. is being physically carried around, and ends up in a horrific, horrific situation. Um, and then to compound the issue, it's talked about publicly. The stunning thing for me about this was it wasn't talked about publicly. I'm not trying to make light of that, of course, but mm-hmm. the way it was talked about publicly was by saying that they raped her, not that they had sex with her, which wouldn't have been appropriate either, but that was yeah. the term that they were using. And so you're going like, like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. I can't believe you're saying that is what happened publicly. Like that's, that was shocking for me to watch. Yeah. Yeah. They were bragging about it and joking about it. And, um, we have to remember this was 2012, um, which we're, you know, in a town that's not very, uh, you know, evolved or elevated around issues of like how to speak to women and gender and gender equality, which means like men and women are, you know, equal participants in society and deserve equal rights and treatment and people can express themselves in whatever way they want. That's not really the case there. So yeah, these boys were totally using that term, um, as a joke, bragging about it. Um, yeah, really, really minimizing it. And I think that what they did in that case really helped the world understand what rape culture is, right? Because saying those words isn't necessarily illegal, but it was a way to show oh my God, this is what rape culture means. It's a culture that normalizes rape, that jokes about it, that thinks it's no big deal. And this is five years before me too, right? So really the point of the book after I made the film was to show that this case was one of the sparks (laughs) that lit the bonfire of the Me Too movement. Like people had just had enough at this point. It was just like, when does this end? And I feel like the Steubenville 12 minute YouTube video where this kid is like laughing and joking about rape that went totally viral was something that really helped the world understand, okay, we're not looking at a graphic assault, but we're hearing kids laugh their faces off about the violation of one of their classmates. What on earth is wrong with us? I think that was like the question that was asked, like, what is wrong with our sons? What is wrong with our culture? Yeah, I mean, when you when you watch that, you go, okay. Um, even in, in, I'm not saying that they were joking, but in the sense of joking as if it didn't happen. But even if you were trying to make a joke and something didn't happen, and you're using that term on the internet publicly, it's like, wow. Like I would be afraid to ever publicly joke that I raped someone. Like if if there was no like I. Like nothing had ever happened. I just even make that joke. I'll just be so yeah. afraid. Like that's in this, this instance, not only did a rape happen, there was a, there's a sexual counter and it was a rape. And so it's like, oh, it's like, I just, oh man, I just, how did, 
So you your film came out in 2018, right? Yeah, and then it it did a festival run in 2018, and then it went on Netflix okay. in 2019. So that was okay. kind of a much bigger, wider right. release. Mm-hmm. So 2018, 2019, but this happened in 2012. Yeah. So yeah. what I'm trying to I want to kind of bridge mm-hmm. this gap here. So when you're going, when did you start the process of um, making the film? So because you came out in 2018, you probably worked on this for a couple of years or a year or two. I don't know how. So when did you start talking to people about making this film and started um, asking questions? Yeah, I went back. Um, and I also talk about this in the book because the book is is kind of a behind the scenes a bit of the making of the film. But I went back a year to the day um, from the assault. So I went back on the anniversary of one year because there had been so much media coverage, like CNN, like, you know, Pierce Morgan, like whatever is, you know, Anderson Cooper was in town. Like everyone was there the year this case broke. And the question I had was, is, is there, you know, is anyone still talking about it? Like, is the case over? Because when I had to try to pitch this movie and get financing to make it, people are like, well, you know, it's, it's over. It's already been told the news covered it extensively. What else are, you know, what else is there to tell? So I was sort of testing myself, like, let's go back a year later on the anniversary and see if people are still talking about it or affected or whatever. And I found, I mean, it was on the lips of everyone um, in all these different bars I went to or little restaurants. I would hear snippets of conversation. I mean, it was very alive for people in town. And I realized they had been like ripped apart. Like what happens when your little small town is under the scrutiny of the global media? And it's not just global media, it's the hackers collective anonymous, right? These random people in these spooky masks, you know, so anonymous descends on the town, right? Because they took a vigilante op action and decided to put Steubenville under the microscope, right? And so you have the internet descending and the internet's like, whoa, that's Steubenville, the town from the internet. And then you have poor Steubenville who barely has Wi-Fi, right? Or at least they definitely don't have public Wi-Fi and like the elder folks are lovely and they're all using Facebook, of course, but you know, it's quiet. This is private. This is our little town is suddenly like an internet sensation. So I went there and what, what really struck me at first was just how much it affected like everybody in town, not just the people involved in the assault, you know, business owners, the mayor, like all kinds of people were just like, this tore us apart, you know? It it has to be hard because inside the community, right? Um, I don't know what the population of Steubenville is, but whatever the population is, Mm-hmm. There's going to be people who have nothing to do with this at all, right? They're, they are just, they're there. They're not kids at the school. They've, they're not interacting with the football team or people um, really associated with it. And so you have that group and then you have the group all the way on the other, other end of the spectrum who is families of the perpetrators and, and stuff. And so it, you have this wide spectrum. And then from the outside, you're trying to tell a story and you're trying to get the ethos of what's going on. Um, and you probably had varying levels of embarrassment and anger and frustration um, because, you know, a community is a community. It's not, it's, we're not, we're not like the Borg off Star Trek. We're not one monolithic group of people. You know, you have all these people. So mm-hmm. how, how was it talking to people and, and what was the spectrum of people who were there? I'm sure they all heard about it to your point, but what was the spectrum? Was it, um, more disbelief? Was it more, we knew this was coming? Like, what was the, the kind of the feel? I think people were really shattered and, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I think initially they were horrified, most of them, right? Oh, just horrified by what they heard. And there were definitely a small group of people that instantly were like defending the boys and shaming the girl. Mm-hmm. Um, the girl's from a neighboring town. So I think it might have been different if she was a Steubenville girl that everyone knew her family, but that is not an accident. I think that they chose a girl who was from across the river, right? So she's an outsider in this very small town way. She's not one of us, right? So some people went into that us versus them thing mm-hmm. of, you know, she has a reputation. I mean, there were people absolutely shaming and blaming her. Now, most folks that really found out what their children were saying by a text message, what those tweets read were horrified, right? Because it's no one defends that. I mean, it's just nasty. But when the global media kind of like came in and painted Steubenville X, Y, and Z way, then people got defensive and they say, they don't understand this town. They want to attack football. It's like, no one's attacking football or they're attacking rape, you know? So I think it got very polarized quickly because of the outside attention. Um, I think for the most part, people were really disappointed in the behavior. They were horrified by the YouTube video um, and angry because it brought attention to the town. There was shame and protectiveness. Um, But it became a thing that if you wanted to defend the girl and speak out against rape, you were in the minority. You were in an unpopular minority because it became that if you said rape is bad on some level, you're saying Steubenville is bad. You're critiquing the town, right? It's like any, it's like anything, right? If you make a mistake, it is hard to take responsibility for what happened. Um, What you should not do is dig in your heels and defend everything else. Right. So that, that happened quite a bit there. Yeah. You you do a great job in the film. I think there's a radio program you kind of insert at various points, their talk or the sports talk show about mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. And at the beginning, it's very much like, oh yeah, you know, guys, because this girl. And at the end, mm-hmm. their tune has changed. I don't mm-hmm. know how long that process was, but I thought that was a good way uh, just from an artistic standpoint to show how the story evolved. And while there is uh, frustration on how it started, it did feel by the end of the documentary, and this is what I'm curious your, your, your feel of, it does feel by the end of this story that you told that, that the town finally got it, that they actually realized, oh, we, we, we didn't take this right at the beginning, perhaps. Um, we've maybe not been proactive in how we're talking about these issues. Um, at least that's the vibe I got from that, that arc. Is that a fair assessment of how the town now is dealing with this issue or has dealt with it? Did they finally understand maybe some of the errors of the past? Um, I, maybe, yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) when, um, you know, members of your school system are indicted, right. And adults are charged with criminal negligence. Yeah. Wakes you up. Right. And when it's the state of Ohio coming in, um, and an attorney general, um, you know, saying this was like a crime and a bad one. And there were adults who should have been responsible. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, so many cases like this get no justice. So this is very rare that there was actually a trial and there was some form of like accountability forced on perpetrators, right? But that's pretty rare that that happens. 
Um, I wouldn't say there's been a ton of learning because certainly there's no sex education going on in the schools. And I don't think the team, I'm sure people are being a little more mindful, but there's not, it's not as if the town has embraced a victim centered approach to like making sure this never happens again. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's like you, you would hope that that happened, but what I found when I went back in my research for the book is, you know, people grow up, right. And some of the kids I talked to have grown up and left town and said, wow, (laughs) that is a, a place where it was hard to get perspective when you were living in the town. Right. Um, but the schools haven't implemented anything. Um, one of the young men who was adjudicated guilty, Trent Mays has, gone on to reoffend and was let onto a football team at a school because he's a good football player and he's doing what he did in high school. So no, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's been like a huge reckoning, but when the law slaps you, then you have to say, okay, well, the judge found us guilty. Um, but a deeper reckoning, I, I think not as much as you would think. Mm. So there's two, two main perpetrators, correct? Is that memory serve you right? Um, I would I would say that there's five actually. I make sure to include the three others who are both witness and taking photos. But two no, two young men were adjudicated, but there were like five of them in the room. Yes, I'm sorry, five in the room, two yeah. doing the act. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you're saying that one of them has been convicted again now. So he's uh, has not been convicted, but it's um, been spoken that he reoffended okay, okay, the school you. he was at. I got you. What what does the town like? Are are these when they walk around town? You said that the towns somewhat evolve, not 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 too much. Um, are they able to walk around town? with the sense of um, they paid a debt to society? Do they walk around, mm-hmm. you know, they take ownership? They walk around mm-hmm. with shame? How do they walk around now? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I remember like Malik is really pretty beloved in the town. Um, so he was sort of welcomed back after he served his time and he was welcomed back on the football team, which really divided the town. Um but Malik has really truly been forgiven. I saw Trent Mays, who was the ringleader. Um, and just to say again, in my book, I really break down the roles of these boys because they all had very specific roles um, to my mind and what I studied about their police interrogations and their text messages. But Trent Mays was the ringleader. And I saw him go to a basketball game like a year and nine months after he had been in juvie. And he was like humble. I mean, he was there in the stands surrounded by people. So he was back in, right? But he wasn't flexing. And then like six months later, when he's in community college, he's exactly the way he was in high school. He's That's where he reoffended. He took a photo of a passed out girl. Like she was naked. I mean, the same assault, right? Like he did it again. So nobody in town to my in my conversations really had like a lot of love for him. I think they all sort of knew like, yeah, maybe he's not the best, (laughs) you know? Um, But everyone else is is walking around, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, look, it's a, it's a pretty Catholic town. So there's a lot of like forgiveness language and second chances and um, Malik absolutely served his time and was welcomed back in. Trent served his time, but has not really um, demonstrated, you know, pro-social behavior, you know, and, and that's not lost on people. Michael Nodianas, the one who made the YouTube video, not popular in town. Mm. Yeah, I, I would imagine the the hard part about a case like this is you have the the two that were um, doing the act, the the three that were watching, but then you have the one who almost becomes mm-hmm. oddly the face of it because yeah. yeah, how do you place so the three that in the room no doubt should have stopped it. So I'm not trying to minimize that, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but on the hierarchy, they aren't as mm-hmm. bad as the one they're, they're slightly below, I guess the ones that actually do the act. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but I mean, yeah. Like how, how do we think about, about, about yeah. these five and, and, and ascribing blame to them? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that they were, they were juveniles to how much, mm-hmm. if any, does that come into the conversation or should it? Come yeah, in? no, I love, like, I personally am also really fascinated by pack behavior (laughs) and how all those elements really play in and encourage each other. Right. So you have the three guys in the room, but one of them had brokered, you know, the relationship with Jane Doe and Trent. And then the day after the assault, one of them is brokering. What do you remember Jane Doe? Okay. Okay. Going back to Trent being like, she doesn't remember anything. Like he's, he's ferreting all the information. Um, which I find to be really insidious. He's so so much of a liar. They call him back in twice in his police interview. Like he bald faced lied to the cops. No one else lied to the cops. This kid is so talking out of two sides of his mouth. Oh, I was so scared as he's the one taking photos of an actual assault and then passing it around, then deleting it. Um, So I call him, you know, the gossip and I find his behavior critical to any kind of criminal behavior, kind of shuttling between all the parties. Um, there was another boy who wasn't in the room, but he absolutely introduced Jane Doe and Trent. He gave Trent Mays, Jane Doe's father's phone number. So Trent could call and try to cover his tracks. Like he also posted the photo of Jane Doe being carried, right. That went totally viral. So like, that's, part of it he fanned the flames right Mm -hmm. so then the kid who makes the youtube video is doing it for an audience of like 30 and doesn't realize it's going to go into the millions Mm. you know and he's part of it too he's part of the public humiliation of it so if you look at like what these assaults are right it's like this thing that happens in a room this terrible thing it also happened in a car on the way over um so it's a thing that is an awful, you know, humiliation and violation, right? And then it rings out because a few of them make sure it gets public, it gets laughs, it gets retweeted. So David Lisak is this expert in perpetrator behavior, um, Dr. David Lisak. And he says, like, be careful of ascribing like hard and fixed roles for any of these boys in a pack situation, because one day it's Trent and another day it could be you know, another one of them, right? The gossip mm-hmm. might be the one coercing and Malik was the follower in this case. Um, but maybe he wouldn't be the next time around. So they're not 
solidified roles, right? It's sometimes like, how can you manipulate a situation to engage in this behavior? Trent is absolutely the ringleader, but it doesn't mean that one or other of them, uh, you know, might not do that in the future. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we, um, this not out by the time when you're talking, but it, it will be out by the time, uh, yours comes out. And so I'll, uh, connect to the show, to show notes we had on, uh, the director of sins of our mother. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, in that one, um, you know, the trials haven't happened yet. So we're going to see what the prosecution alleges, but, um, you know, there's a story of a, of a, of a mom whose two kids are dead. Um, and it's either her or her, her new husband, it seems, or, you know, one or both killed them. Um, and at, at best, and there's no way to put it, but at best, the mom is an accessory to the murder of her children. At worst, she's uh-huh. the, the trigger. And you start, you start asking questions about, you know, you know, what does that mean um, from the standpoint of, of guilt and, and, and um, responsibility? Because, you know, for the boys, for, for boys or men watching a woman getting raped, um, unless you are physically impaired to the point you can't move, it's, it's hard to argue that you're not culpable on some level to stand up and go stop this horrific act. Um, and, and so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a terrible situation all the way around. And so what's been the response to your book and to your film? Oh, sorry. Can you uh, repeat the question? A, a helicopter. I'm in LA. <laughs> Whoever no, really noisily really right at the yeah. end there. No, yeah. I, I said, what's been the response? So what's been the response um, to the film, to the book? What, what are people saying to you when you hear from viewers, readers, et cetera? Oh yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks want this to be in every school and I agree. Um, I think um, in terms of a cautionary tale, Um, We also built out a lot of resources and the book has a lot of like, here are some concrete things you can do. Here are some incredible men doing anti-violence work. Like that was a a really big part of what I wanted to communicate with the world here because I toured the country with this film and they're like, oh, we'll get someone from the women's center to come. I was like, no, 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 no. Women (laughs) don't need to be talking about this men. This is like, this is a community problem. This is going on in all male spaces. This is going on on teams. And like, it, we really, really, really need men to be the ones addressing it among their own peers and their own friends, right? So I really initially with this wanted to take the burden off of women who have to fend off this behavior all the time um, and really invite guys to frankly give a shit, you know, and say, yeah, I know those guys. Oh, I hate those guys. I I know exactly those types. Right. And what was great about making this film and bringing it into the film world is like a lot of film guys are not football players. Right. (laughs) So I thought at first, oh no, because it is a pretty male space. Sometimes it feels that way. Like, oh, our festival's you know, guys not going to like this, but guys are like, I was bullied by these types of dudes as well. Like this behavior of the bullying of women and sexual bullying and assault also happens to guys, guys who read guys who are skinny guys who are nerds, right? Like I went through it. So I was like, ah, okay. So we have some allies here. So the response has, has really been also because of how I tried to push it, that men need to step up men need to recognize it. Men know what it is and call it out in their own groups. And I hope that parents are making sure that whatever teams their kids are on, that the coaches are engaging in 
acknowledging like this behavior isn't okay. And at the very least, just talking about it. Like we can't pretend this doesn't happen. We know it happens. We know it happens all over the place. So um, yeah, I mean, the response to the film was great. Um, where we had millions and millions of viewers, um, we're now on Amazon. I still hear from people watching it, you know, and it's years out already. Um, and the book's been incredible. We were cited in the New York times multiple times and it is not a beach read, right? So it came out in the summer and I was like, you know, this is a little bit of a back to school, you know, read. Um, but yeah, the response has been, has been really good. And we still have this problem here and we need to address it. And there are great ways. The good news is, you know, there are tried and true methods to try to root this out, you know? Okay. So you have the book um, and the documentary roll, red roll. You also have a, a short film. I, okay. Are documentaries films? I don't know. I'm not a filmmaker. So it, do you call a documentary a film or do you call it a documentary? Just, I need, I need an expert opinion on this. <laughs> uh I, I like documentary film. You can absolutely okay. say both. Sure. Okay. okay. So you have a film on anonymous um, comes to town. Mm -hmm. I think it's what it's called, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that kind of uh, its own little story. Mm -hmm. We'll link to all of that in the show notes for listeners to go to watch. And, and you know, um, it's, it's, you know, I didn't, I don't know. I mean, 2012, I'm trying to think of what I was doing, but didn't hear the story. You know, yeah. I'm sure yeah. I probably heard something I'd forgotten, but you know, mm -hmm. when I come across this. I was like, oh, huh, okay, let me see what's going on here. I was like, oh, 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 wow. Okay. That's, that's, that's tragic. That's tragic. Um, do, do we know, um, was Jane Doe ever to, has she been able to move on past this incident? Yeah, I mean, the point of the film and the book was always to protect her identity completely. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And no, I appreciate you asking. It shows that you care about her humanity. Mm -hmm. um, but also this isn't, of course, this isn't about her. And people in, when I was making the film were like, are you going to interview her? Can we have an interview with her? And to make sure she's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you want to make sure she's okay because you want to be able to leave the movie and be like, she's okay. So it's okay. I was like, no, I'm making the very conscious choice that you will not know. You will hope that she's all right, of course. But if I give you that little bit of assurance, you can go home and be like, phew. Okay. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. No, it was bad. Yeah. Um, and yes, she's moved on and living her life and it still continues though. Right. Yeah. So it's like, really the point was like, this isn't about her and there's always a pressure on victims to be the voices of it, to have to relive it in the media, to have to beg audiences to understand that it was rape and feel bad, you know, please give her humanity. It's like, Oh, hells no, no, you should care about this anyway. No, you know? I think that's one of the things as I've start to watch more and more documentaries is mm -hmm. each documentary filmmaker has their own perspective of the way mm -hmm. they're trying to tell the story. And mm -hmm. for the, for the viewer standpoint, it's always helpful to understand the story that's trying to be told because you're not telling the complete comprehensive story of every detail court case hearing trial. Like that's not, mm -hmm. that's not the point of the documentary. You're telling it that uh, this certain arc and narrative um, that's part of this overall story. Um, and, and so um, yeah, there's a few conscious decisions that you made in the film that I thought were interesting. That, that was one. Um, mm -hmm. and it does have the effect that you're looking for. The other one was, is that you left out the names of the adults who were convicted, which I thought was an interesting choice. 
Yeah. I mean, that wasn't because I'm protecting them. It was because, um, it was very convoluted what their charges were. I got you. Um, if there had been a really good one, you know, their charges were, you know, when you get into legal stuff, mm. um, it's, you know, they're just very convoluted. And I feel yes. like I've asked like a lot more questions and like in our, in our show notes, we have it. And yep. certainly in the book, there's more sure. time and detail, but I wanted to keep things slim. If there had been someone who had witnessed it and knew, mm -hmm. no, the charges, one, someone was charged with theft of an iPad. Someone was charged with, you know, just these sort of like weird, they tried to get them on anything they could and they got them right. But mm -hmm. they're, they're not, it's not like a juicy card that you want to see but they yeah. were involved and they were convicted and that was good and most of the charges got dropped after six months like it's not as satisfying as you want it for the film so leaving it that you see their faces pixelated and know that they were charged is like oh good mm -hmm. you know it gives you a little bit of justice <laughs> but um yeah i mean if you want to know what happened to everybody it's all in the, much, the book. Much longer book yeah, yeah. no and, and, and yeah i'm not being critical at all it's just it's just um from a non-filmmaker filmmaker's perspective just a, a, a viewer's perspective yeah. mm -hmm. you always it, you you sometimes stuff's done really well that makes you ask the questions it makes you dig deeper in with jane doe it's it's a thing to where you do leave um wondering oh my gosh you know did she make it yeah. but then you also don't want to go google because you don't want to know who she is right yeah. i didn't want to i, I, I googled who yeah, she is. i don't, don't want to know i don't yeah. i don't want to know it's not, it's not my business to know yeah um, so you but you're in this weird spot to like oh man god this is this is brutal um, yeah. you just hope that she came out the other side of it. Um, yeah. and you also hope that they get everything due to them. So uh, those are, yeah. so uh, they don't, but they almost do. And I don't. guess I appreciate, you know, all your feelings around it. And I think what sucks in a big broad way. And I, you know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, like the banality of evil, right. Mm -hmm. This happens in every high school on some level in some way. And why I was able to make this film. I come from a very different town. I'm from out nine miles outside of Philly. Um, we had a terrible football team. <laughs> we had no football <laughs> team. Um, Philly's a great sports town, but definitely not my high school. Right. And like this stuff was happening every weekend, just a different demographic. And it was before social media. And so people are like, how were you able to make that? I was like, this was familiar to me. I know those kids. I know that type of kid. I went to those kinds of parties. Like I know that world, even though I'm different, you know, I was able to step in because I understand those boys. And I feel like I grew up with a group of them, mm. you know, and it was a toxic, toxic behavior. And the parents kind of knew about it mm. and the teachers kind of knew about it. And, you know, I changed schools in 10th grade to a very different environment and it was wildly different, you know, and you're like, oh, this is what happens when teachers do not let bullying happen in the halls. This is what happens when you can go to a party as a sophomore in high school and not have Monday be about who was raped or not, you know? So yeah. I really do. The thing that gets you is like Jane Doe was like my best friend in high school, yeah. who was the pretty new girl who was absolutely preyed upon by the boys, right. By the older boys. So it, it just, I think what is it's endemic, it's endemic. So I just wanted to really shine a light to show and then have us all look for it in our own lives you know, and see it. Well, it was well done, I thought, and I enjoyed Thanks. it. And so we'll link to the, the link okay. to it on the show notes. And part of the reason we created this podcast is to have on 
um, varying discussions of varying perspectives. And um, mm -hmm. so we appreciate your time. Do you have an upcoming project for us to watch out for? Um, yes, I can't say much about it, but okay. it will uh, be on Netflix um, in early 2023. And I hope it, um, you know, causes a reaction and um, it's definitely shining a light on some troubling behavior. And um, I'm excited about it. It's about a journalist uncovering the story of her career. And um, it is kind of, I call it like a love letter to investigative journalism. It's like someone really knocking on doors, not taking no for an answer, getting the door slammed in her face, you know, all the, all the non-glamorous, but awesome stuff that it takes to really not give up on exposing um, things that are going on. So I'm really excited for that one to come out and share it with you all. Um, yeah, it's a good one. Awesome. Sounds exciting. And yeah, love to get you back on to discuss it when it comes out. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Be sure to go to warroommedia.com to let me know your thoughts. And everyone who signs up is eligible for the free account uh, to win a copy of In the Lion's Den, warroommedia.com. And we'll talk to you tomorrow.